We're picking up partway through the letter here. We're, we're joining a conversation, really, that's already in progress. So I think it's important to just take a minute to, to remind us of what, how Peter has brought us to this point in the letter. We know from verse 1 that he's writing to elect exiles, he tells us. There in verse 1, they've been displaced from their country, whether that's, it looks like it's literally, whether this is written to Jews or Gentiles, that, that's a debate. But, but what is true or what is known is they are experiencing great, great trial. Trials of many kind, he tells us in verse 6. They've been slandered for their faith. They've been insulted for Christ. These people had been shamed because of their new way of life in Christ. As you know, First Peter, suffering is really a prominent theme throughout this letter. And so Peter, in seeking to really encourage these believers, as he says in 5.12, to encourage them to stand firm in the grace of God. He holds out before them, especially in this first chapter, he holds out before them the amazing hope and the inheritance that is now theirs in Christ. And he says, look to this. He does this very well in this first chapter. Like with a lot of New Testament letters, the author here reminds the Christian, throughout the New Testament, reminds the Christian of their position in Christ, namely what, what Jesus has done for them. We refer to this as the indicative, right? This is the fact, the reality of the gospel. And then out of that gospel reality, out of that pool of reality, he charges the believers to live in light of who they now are. And this is often done throughout the New Testament by way of exhortations or commands from the inspired author. This letter is no different. If you just scan through verses 3 through 12 especially, they're just packed full with blessings from the Father through his Son. As you just meditate on that, your heart can just be warmed to what he has done. Verse 3, it says, The Father's caused the believer to be born again. Born again to a living hope, he says. He's been shown great mercy. He's shown great mercy to them. Given them this inheritance that he says that is indestructible. It can't be touched. The believer is guarded by faith, he says in verse 9 and 5. For this future day, this future salvation. And he says, you've been filled, you've been given a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And so he, he really lays this grace-heavy foundation, which you know, imagine the readers of this first letter reading this for the first time, these exiles, reading what they have in Jesus Christ. And then Peter comes to verse 13 and uses a very common word. He says, therefore, in light of what I have just been writing to you, in light of what I've just said, and in light of who you are, apart from anything on your own, but because of Jesus, this is now what your life should start to look like. The gospel changes everything. And because of that, our lives ought to manifest change. Our lives begin to manifest change in how we think, in the decisions that we now make, even our desires God begins to slowly change because of who he's, what he's done for us. And so Peter proceeds without the rest of this letter, really providing an inspired description of what new life looks like, even in the midst of turmoil. So beginning in 122 here, we pick up with, with really his fourth commandment, the fourth exhortation given to his readers. And I think this is where I want us to see that the gospel reality, first of all, it compels us to love. Let's consider that first. You, you notice, and I want you to notice this in your text, 
sandwiched right in between these two verses, 22 and 23, that Paul gives a command. He commands the readers, you see there, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is the main command there of 22. But if we continue with that that sandwich terminology in your head, that command that is given is the meat of the sandwich. But before considering the meat, notice the bread on either side of that command. Just look at that there. Both slices here express really the same foundational gospel truth, but, but from a little different angle. Really what Peter is doing here is providing us with two supports or bases for his command to love. He's doing in micro form what he does throughout the entire letter. He provides the indicative, right? He provides the fact of the gospel, and flowing from that is then the imperative, the command. I want you to see that. We're going to spend just a few minutes pulling these supports apart since, I, since each of his ensuing points in the rest of this passage stem from this foundation that he's laying. And so we're going to spend the vast majority of our time here on point one, and I I wanted to state that up front lest you start to worry about the lunch burning and I'm just done with point one. So notice first of all the, the, the first reason or basis that he gives for this command to love. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Peter begins here by reminding his readers of what had happened to them, how they have been changed. He says, washed completely on the inside. Their souls have been purified. They've been cleansed. He's reminding them this is what the gospel of Jesus does for those who recognize their great need for a Savior and then turn in repentance and belief to Christ. And at that point, purified, spotless, no matter what they had done, this is the gospel. Just think about that for a moment. They've been purified. As I mentioned earlier, I I love the examples that even just Paul records of this happening, where often he'll provide a list of really just dreadful sins that these believers, prior to their conversion, that they'd been entangled with. They'd been enslaved by, and because of that, filthy. But Paul says, even just as an example in 1 Corinthians 6, after listing these sins, he says, and such were some of you, but... You have been washed. You've been sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. No more guilt. Stains gone. He says your souls are purified because Jesus has cleansed you with his blood. Can you relate to that gospel blessing this morning? If you've been the recipient of this blessing by faith in Jesus Christ, even now as we sit and as we think, let us honor him with our thoughts with our prayers of thanksgiving for what he has done, due to nothing in ourselves, right? We're now forever clean in his eyes, and for that, we will be forever grateful. So Peter reminds them of this this kind gospel truth, and then he reminds them how this came about. Look at the next phrase. He says, by your obedience to the truth. Never would we want to deny or even downplay the sovereign work of grace that must take place in the heart of sinners for this washing to occur. In fact, he's going to speak to that next. But neither do we want to deny that a human response is necessary. There is a call to faith. 
Washing, this washing that he refers to does not simply take place because we hear the truth. There are many who have heard the truth that remain unaffected and continue in darkness lost. There's a call to obey the truth. And in this context especially, and many times throughout the New Testament, the truth is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Paul talks in Romans 10, you're probably familiar with this, of those who, quote, have not obeyed the gospel and are yet in darkness. Similar phrase in 1 Thessalonians 1, he refers, he's speaking to the coming judgment of God on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So within this message, there's a, there's a call to obey, there's a call to faith. To respond, we know there's that call to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And these believers had done that. They had obeyed the truth by turning to Christ. It says they've been purified by his cleansing blood. Before we look at at the second foundation or the second slice or reason for obeying the command to love, notice why Peter says these believers had been purified. In verse 22, he uses that little word, for which I think we should take note of. Having purified your souls by obeying the gospel for a sincere brotherly love. Purification of soul by obeying the truth is in order to love. According to this passage, that is the main reason for gospel change. Now clearly, there are other reasons that are provided throughout the scripture for being cleansed. But here, the result of being changed by the gospel or even a goal of gospel change is for the purpose of loving our brothers. I found that interesting as I studied that this week. Peter is saying in this text with that little word, that little connector, that the reason you have been changed is so that you can extend love to one another. I think here we start to see a hint of the image of God beginning to be restored in man. In his image, as we are created in his image, we are created to look outside of ourselves. First of all, to love him, but then to love others. That's part of being created in the image of God, but but with the fall, that was shattered. And yet now, he says, in being purified, we are once again able to look outside of ourselves and to image him by loving others. I think this is the first basis or reason number one of why they could even think about loving, why they could, why they should love. They've been changed. Their souls had been purified to love out of a love which with they have been shown. So this is the top part of the sandwich. If that's helping you, as it kind of helped me. Skip past the meat. I want you to see this. Skip down to verse 23 and we'll look at the second support. He says in 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So at the end of verse 22, he gives the command to love. You see that. And then he follows it up in the next verse with another reason, another support for why they can love. He says, since you have been given this new life, since you have been born afresh, they they had been given a, a completely new dimension of existence that was now to involve more than just themselves. And so while the first reason that he gives in 22 really hints at at the, the human side, right? Obedience to the truth. Verse 23 shows us that this does not happen apart from God's intervention on our heart. 
does not happen from being remade on the inside. And so Peter reminds them in this verse, you have been born again. Reminds them that something has taken place on the inside which initially they had no part in. He'd already made this clear in really the, the third verse of his letter. 1-3, you're familiar, where he says, according to his great mercy, he, God, has caused us to be born again. God did this. And apart from his action on our behalf, we would remain spiritually asleep. In fact, spiritually dead. No person in their natural birth condition will have the ability to love in the way that he's going to call us to love without this happening. Attempts have been made, and they they can be made, but prior to God awakening our souls and implanting new life, even our our attempts at loving are self-tainted, given to self-interest. I love what John Calvin said in in his comment on this verse. He said, everyone measures the love that he shows to others by how he will be advantaged. Isn't that true? Our nature ultimately desires our benefit, even in doing good. But because God has remade us, because God has given new life, you can now love in the way that he is going to call for, that the gospel calls for. Before we look at that kind of love, just notice briefly that Peter reminds his readers just how different that, that first and new, the, the new birth is from his second birth. The natural birth came through, he says, perishable seed, which always leads to death. The second birth, he says, comes from imperishable, indestructible seed that will never die. Why? Because it's through the living and abiding word of God. He highlights this contrast in 24 and 25 as he points to the absolute frailty of flesh of mankind. He quotes from Isaiah 40 to demonstrate that flesh, mankind, will wither like grass. Even the flower, he says, though beautiful for a time, has a near expiration date. There is no avoiding, especially as we consider these verses, no avoiding the temporal, passing nature of mankind. But he contrasts that and says the word of God, as it is heard and read, as it goes forth, it takes root in the soul. And the spirit takes that word and awakens new life. It's a living word of God. It's abiding. It's going to last forever. It will complete what it it has started in the life of the believer. And this, he says, should compel us to love. We won't take the time or have the time this morning to really consider the prominence of that the word has in this short paragraph. But four times, you notice, he, he mentions it. He says it in 23, it's the living and abiding word of God. In verse 25, he, he calls it the word of the Lord that remains forever. And then at the end, he says, he tells us, he defines what this is. It's the, it's the gospel. This word, he says, the gospel is, this word is the gospel that was preached to you. And in 2.3, he refers, more than likely, this is the word of God when he says the pure spiritual milk. Peter wants us to understand. He wants it to, wants it to be clear that spiritual life, that purification of our souls, and that this ability, a heart to now love, comes through the living and abiding word of God. Apart from his grace, this supernatural kind of love will not happen. 
Let's look at that, what, what this love is that he calls for, just what he has in mind. He defines it pretty specifically for us. So we'll take a couple minutes just to, to look at this. He's provided the foundation. He's spoken to these gospel blessings. And he says, and so, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, now love. Love earnestly. Love from a pure heart. Specifically, this love, he says, is to be sincere. Or later, he says, from a pure heart. It doesn't come, the way that we are to love people doesn't come with with a hidden agenda or strings attached to how we show this love. It's not to be given with us thinking, what am I going to benefit from this? It's not a pretend love where, where we look loving on the outside, but on the inside, I could really care less about this person that I'm having a conversation with. It's to be sincere. It's to be from the heart. That's why it requires a heart change. We cannot do it apart from this. It's also to be brotherly, he says. While we are commanded, we are commanded to love those outside of the church. In fact, we're commanded to love our enemies, right? Tom is going to speak to that next week. But this specific term, this call is is to sincerely love those within the family of faith. Those whom we've been bonded together with and joined with in Christ. Brotherly love, this term, is really an endearing term. Describes just a relational warmth for the spiritual family of God. In fact, those who are sitting around us right now, those who are sitting across the way from us, these are the people that you are to be evidencing a growing personal concern for. If we're to obey this command, these are the people that we are to to grow in our care and in our love for. This love is brotherly that he is calling us to. I just encourage you to be asking yourselves even now, who am I moving towards in demonstrating this brotherly love? Who am I considering right now that I can love in this brotherly way that, that Peter has called us to? And maybe even go further, who am I? Is there someone right now that I am withholding this brotherly love from? Is there someone that, it, that there is um, there's a schism between? I'm not loving them in this way. Remember the words of Jesus? He said, by this shall all people know that you are my disciples, by how you love, or if you love one another. God has sovereignly placed each of us in this body to be pouring out, to be pouring over one another this genuine brotherly love. This is his call to us from this word even this morning. Finally, this love, Peter says, is to be earnest. It's to be eager. And in fact, this this word has an idea of straining. It's to be strenuous. He uses, in fact, Luke, as he writes his gospel, uses this word to describe Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. And he's, he's praying in the garden. And he says in verse 44 of chapter 22, And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Here's an image of earnest prayer. And Peter picks up, intentionally uses this word to say that we are to love one another with the same level of intensity, the same level of earnestness. Love involves our thought and our effort. John tells us true love is not just to be spoken about, right? It's not to be in in talk 
or in word, but it's to be in deed. Let our love be measured by what it costs us. You may be familiar or remember from back in the day that old uh, DC Talk song that says, Love is a what? Maybe you don't remember. Love, love is a verb. Requires action. There's giving out of this basis, this pool of gospel reality. And let, lest that sound intimidating to us as we think about moving out in loving, this love may simply be demonstrated by, by, by just listening to someone intently and with care. Not thinking about where you've got to get to next. Not thinking about even, well, what's, am I going to sound foolish with this next comment or maybe I'm not going to have anything to say? No. Listening, caring for them by just loving, being concerned with, with what their concern is at that moment. That can be loving. Considering them more significant than yourself. This is love. A good question to ask yourself in evaluating your love in this way might be, because of what Christ has done for me, how am I inconveniencing myself for the benefit of another? This is earnest love. John said, by this we know love. Okay, this is what it's to look like, John says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He doesn't stop there. He says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Father, help us do this, right? He continues to say that when we love in this way, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. By how we love. Love is not an add-on for the Christian. It's not a bonus. He says, in fact, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love. Because we love the brothers. And again, whoever does not love abides yet in death. And so Peter in this passage says, now that you have been born again through the living and abiding word, your posture towards your, the family of Christ is completely reoriented. The gospel changes everything and it compels you to love. Secondly, and, and much more briefly, the gospel changes everything in that it frees us to leave. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. He begins with, therefore, or so. In light of what I have just been saying, he says, put away or leave behind all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and all slander. The word here, to put away, depicts the taking off of a garment in order to put on another. Because of their new life in Christ, they are, not, they are to leave their sins behind, especially these sins that, that keep us from loving our brothers. The truth about Christ and the way he has changed our hearts is to make a difference in how I think and consider and treat you. Each of these vices that he lists, there he lists five of them, each are incompatible with loving one another. One commentator, in fact, Peter Davids, he writes this. He reminds us that these, these are not the grosser sins of paganism that we often see throughout the New Testament, but rather these are the community-destroying vices that are often tolerated in the church. Peter begins here with malice, put away malice. This idea of ill will or, or harsh thoughts toward one another. 
perhaps stemming from jealousy or even bitterness from, from a past hurt. Put that away. Because of Christ, take that off. You've been freed now to leave it behind. Deceit and hypocrisy, very similar words here, where there's this exterior, this false exterior or an appearance of truth, but it's really masked, right? Perhaps masked with a smile. Yeah, everything's great. We're doing fine. When you know there isn't. Things aren't fine. Each of us battles to some degree. If you think about it, battles with this hypocrisy to varying degrees as, as we seek to put our best foot forward, right? We seek to put our best front on, often in deceitful ways. And Peter says the gospel frees us from having to pretend. From year after year, portraying someone we are not and allowing or, or not allowing other broken people, as Ray prayed, not allowing other broken people to minister the gospel where it is needed most in our life. This hurts all of us in the long run. This destroys the body from within. Clearly, there is a level of appropriateness here to be considered. But as a struggling people, we have been placed in a body where transparency is really necessary. It's needed so that other struggling people sitting around you even now can encourage you where to direct your eyes to the only one who can heal you. Deceit dismantles our ability to grow as a body and to love one another. And so put it away. The gospel frees us to leave this behind. It frees me, in fact, to admit my brokenness. That is part of the gospel, right? That's a huge part of the gospel. When we seek to diminish that need for the gospel, we, in effect, seek to limit the healing balm that the gospel offers to us. And so Peter says, come out from behind the mask of deceit and hypocrisy. He finishes this list with envy and slander. We're familiar with these. We won't spend long. Envy is really the, the secret desiring, secretly inside desiring what another has, even being jealous or disappointed when others prosper. Don't you feel that battle at times in your soul? I know we all do. Things just seem to be going so right for them. They don't have the struggles that, that, that we are facing right now. Or why, why can't that blessing happen to me or to my family? It never happens to us. When those thoughts enter our minds, consider afresh all that you have in the gospel that you do not deserve. Consider afresh that you have been called to rejoice with that brother and sister. You've been called to sincerely weep with one another. Your life is no longer wrapped up in just you. So in those times of internal struggle, take that moment to reflect upon and to thank God for the new birth that he has granted you everything that you could ever desire. All is yours in Jesus. Consider that. Leave these behind, Peter writes. Of this list, I think Thomas Schreiner, who's a commentator, wrote a commentary on this book. He reminds us that these sins that he's just referred to, these sins tear at the social fabric of the church, ripping away threads of love that keep it together. 
And so as you consider your own relationships with one another, is the Spirit bringing to the surface where you might be holding on to some of these? The gospel changes everything. And by His grace, our lives begin to look progressively different as we grow in holiness by leaving these love-destroying sins behind. So the gospel, first of all, compels us to love. It frees us to leave. And then finally, it moves us to long. Not only do our actions and behaviors change in now being able to love and to be able to leave sinful actions, but, but our desires are changed as well so that we long And in particular here, we long for the pure spiritual milk. In verse 2, look at that. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. This image makes sense to us, right? As we consider a newborn, just a newborn baby longing for nourishment, longing for that physical milk. In many cases, it it almost seems as if the baby knows that their life depends on it as they cry out. There's just this frequent desire, this earnest craving for milk. And so Peter takes this image and he gives it to us and says that 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 same way, he takes the image to command followers of Christ to crave the spiritual milk of the word in that same way. To desire, to yearn for feedings. And while it's not explicitly stated here, from the context, it seems clear that this is the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God. It's through consumption of this milk of the Word that the believer is slowly matured in faith. It's through feasting on the gospel truth that one grows up to salvation, as he says here. Not, not earning, right? Not slowly growing or gaining salvation, as that would be impossible. But as Peter has been using this term of salvation, he's looking to that final day. That future day when we will be saved finally from the wrath of God. But until that day, craving and consuming the word prepares you to actually see him as you grow into his likeness. It prepares you for that day from glory to glory as you are changed Peter knows full well, in fact, he probably heard the Lord say, maybe on more than one occasion, that that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, consuming this word, hearing it as you are this morning, reading it, studying it, is the God-ordained means of building you up in the faith and of readying you to see your Savior. So the Word of God is held up as the instrument of creating new life. It's also held up as the food that sustains and grows new life. We must consider for a moment our own craving for that milk. Are we spiritually weak right now because of our lack of, or our neglect of the Word? I think when considering this text and really this call, we, we really need to ask ourselves, What else am I filling up on? As we think about our time and our our desires, what things are are stealing away my hunger for this pure milk of the word? 
It's easy to ask that seeking to put a guilt trip on you or on me. I don't do that. The gospel is more than sufficient to cover our failure to drink as often as we should from the word of God. But God is calling us this morning through this scripture to long and to drink deeply from the sustenance that he has laid out here for us. Go to the word. Peter closes out this paragraph as Keith drew our attention to. He he closes it with this phrase, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And he knew that they had tasted. They had tasted the goodness of the Lord. Peter has just been reminding them of that sweetness. With this final phrase, he's clearly linking, if you just notice it there, he's clearly linking the tasting of the word with the tasting of the Lord himself. If you've tasted, if you've experienced the Lord, he says continue to long and experience him in his word. Listen, to taste here means to know by experience, to consume, to enjoy Knowing that the Lord is good and tasting that the Lord is good are not identical. They are not the same. Tasting goes beyond mere cognition or mere knowledge or answers about the Lord, which which all of us have. Tasting knows from experience that Christ indeed has been good to you. He has pulled you from the mire And he has smiled on you by sheltering you with eternal mercy that he has purchased in his death. Have we experienced the tasting of this Lord? And if so, are you thirsty for more of him because you have found him to be good in this gospel? As the deer pants for water, so my soul must long for him. You will never exhaust the supply of himself. We can never get to the end of God's goodness. And so we must thirst for it. The truth of what he has done changes everything. It moves my heart to long for Christ. In verse 1, or in chapter 1, as he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. You desire him because of what he has done. The gospel moves us to long for this this pure spiritual nourishment that God gives us in himself. So as we pray and consider God's kindness to us in Jesus from this word, let us thank him that he has compelled us to love. He's freed us to leave he moves in our hearts to long for him. Let me start us in prayer. We will take a few minutes to respond to him. As you're reminded every week, we want to encourage you to, to pray loudly so we can join and to pray briefly so that others can pray. Let me start us this morning.